This morning's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, verse 32 to 37. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, you do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Now in French. Cependant, personne ne sait quand viendra ce jour ou cette heure. Pas même les anges du glacier, ni même le fils. Le père se le sait. Attention, ne vous entendez pas, car vous ne savez pas quand le, le moment viendra. Ce sera comme lorsqu'un homme part en voyage. Il quitte sa maison et en laisse le soin à ses serviteurs. Il donne à chacun un travail particulier à faire et il ordonne au gardien de la porte de rester éveillé. Restez donc éveillé, car vous ne savez pas quand les maîtres de la maison y reviendront. Ce sera peut-être le soir ou au milieu de la nuit ou en chatte ou le matin. S'il revient tout à coup, il ne faut pas qu'il vous trouve endormi. Ce que je vous dis là, je vous dis à tous, restez éveillés. The word of God for the people of God. Les mots de Dieu. Uh, here at Soul Sanctuary, and as we've been continuing in the book of Mark, we've been intentionally going to the scriptures and proclaiming the scripture. We've been reading it, and sometimes we've been reading it in more than one language, in English and maybe Ukrainian, or, or maybe today in French. And as we do this, there's an important significance behind it that I want to remind us of. First and foremost, we're obedient to the scriptures. Uh, the Apostle Paul instructs Timothy, he says, commit yourself to the public reading of scripture. As you come together as the family of believers, read the scripture publicly. And that's what we do in a moment like this. We are proclaiming God's word for us here today. And at the same time, we experience each other in the word of God as it's proclaimed. We experience each other in all of our different backgrounds and languages and perspectives that we bring to the word. And so that's one of the beauties that we, uh, uh, or one of the beauties of community that's been experienced as we've been in the book of Mark for the course of the summer. Uh, I, I'm not preaching today, which is great. I, uh, I have a friend uh, who's going to, to share the word with us and, and to uh, explore our passage here in the book of Mark. Uh, my friend's name is Daniel, and Daniel and I met uh, over five years ago, uh, crossing paths at a conference, and some mutual friend introduced us, crossed paths, got to know Daniel, and then over the course of, uh, we were talking uh, out, out on the deck last night, and we were just sharing about the fact that it's probably good that we're not like super, super close because we're very, very alike. So it's great that you live in Vancouver and that I live in Winnipeg because when we get together, those times of alikeness are just really, really rich, but we'd probably grate on each other if we were around each other every single day. Uh, Regardless, Daniel pastors uh, at, a, or one of the pastors at a church in Vancouver, in uh, downtown Vancouver, uh, called The Way Church, uh, and he's been there for the last couple of years, and it's our joy, Daniel, to have you here today uh, as you share God's word with us. So, come on. Let's give it up for Daniel. Awesome. Good morning, Soul Sanctuary. It's good to be here with you this morning. I had two thoughts as the scripture reading was happening. I was doing a couple things simultaneously. I was, one, regretting 
how little I paid attention in French class because as I was reading, I was like, I can recognize maybe four words. Uh, and as a Canadian, that's embarrassing. And then two, I, I, have you guys ever experienced where you're kind of a bit overambitious with how much at once you can consume of a hot drink? So I, I grab a half cup of coffee because I'm like, okay, I think between now and the song and the scripture reading, I can choke it back. And I kept sipping and kept sipping. And then Jordan hopped up and I was like, oh, it's, it's almost time. So I go... And so my tongue might be burnt right now. I'm still trying to figure it out. I think it takes a while for the adrenaline to wear off of the shock, of the... Anyways, so pray for my tongue as I speak. Anyways, it's great to be here. Uh, Soul Sanctuary is a special place for me. I remember... Uh, okay, how's this, guys? How's this? How are we, How are we doing here? Is this, is this better? I can bend it a bit? Okay. There we go. There we go. Come on. We're good. So Sanctuary, as I was saying, is a special place for me. I remember in 2018, um, I was invited here to speak at camp, and Jordan was giving me a tour around the building, and he started to invite me into the vision of what was happening here uh, as far as like the, the thinking behind the design of the building, what the space was being used for in the community and then as a church. And for me, I was just inspired because I was like, oh, I love that a church is thinking intentionally about not only using their space, but using their space in a way that's reaching the community. So I'm so thankful for Jordan's leadership. I'm so thankful for Jordan and Lauren's friendship. I'm thankful for the leadership of Pastor Jerry and Sharon, and I'm just so grateful to be here uh, to be able to share with you guys this morning. As you guys know, we are in the book of Mark, and as we approach scripture um, through different lenses, uh, we have to recognize that it's a complicated book. We have to recognize that it's deeply rich, it's deeply nuanced. So because it's deeply rich and deeply nuanced, it's important to look at the scriptures through different lenses. So we have to look at scripture through the lens of genre. So what's this genre trying to communicate? You guys have to let me know if I'm going too fast, okay? Because sometimes I get talking and I, so just make sure to be like, whoa, 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 slow down. <laughs> So we have to look at, it, look at it through the lens of genre. So we have to say, okay, what is this author trying to say in light of the genre we're in? So the book of Psalms, what is the psalmist trying to say? The book of Revelation, what is the genre of the book of Revelation trying to say to us? But not only do we have to look at scripture through the lens of genre, we have to look at each book and we have to say, what is this book trying to accomplish? What is this book trying to accomplish? So we have four Gospels, for example. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all have different priorities. What are they trying to accomplish within the lens of their different priorities? And then you get certain sections of books. For example, in Matthew, we have something called the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5 through 7. What is Jesus doing with that section of Matthew? And I think similarly here, where we find ourselves in the book of Mark, in the Olivet Discourse, we have to ask ourselves, what is Mark trying to accomplish through how he portrays Jesus' teachings? Scholars would say that the Olivet Discourse wasn't something that happened in one, one cohesive sermon, but some would say that these were series of teachings that happened throughout different times in the course of Jesus' ministry. But we find ourselves here in Mark 13, um, 32, to 37, and Jesus is very specific with the parable. Within the context of the chapter, we see that Jesus is talking about everything pertaining to the last things. The last things. 
the last things, as we saw this week, as uh, Pastor Mike so eloquently shared from Matthew 13, 1 to 30, 31, there's a lot to be thinking about. He touched on the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. He touched on the implications for the Christian imagination and our call to discipleship in the midst of significant cultural and religious shifts. Um, the teaching... Um, the teaching didn't have just implications for the disciples then and Jesus' disciples then. But Mike showed us that the teaching had implications for us now. He showed us that as disciples, we have something to live into, something that we're invited into as Jesus talks about the last things. And in this chapter, Jesus also addresses a number of things. He warns against false teaching, deceptive people and ideologies, he reminds believers not to be alarmed when they hear about wars and rumors of wars and natural disasters. He talks about the insignificance of the temple and other man-made structures. He warns believers of the persecution that will come. And then he promises that after these last things, the Son of Man will return with great power and glory as a great promise for us and hope of redemption. And then, after all that talk of the last things, this text is dropped. Matthew, or Mark 13, 32 to 37. And we're met with a parable, a parable that describes an owner that is leaving his house and he entrusts the keeping or the stewardship of the house with his servants. And his servants, all given their own tasks, are meant to watch after the house of the owner without knowing when the owner is going to return. And so although this text is situated in a section of scripture that has to do with the last things, this specific text is actually more about our formation in the now than it is about the last things. David E. Garland, who's a Mark scholar, says this about the text. He says, Jesus says nothing about the last judgment where the righteous are rewarded and the wicked are punished. Jesus did not intend his words to be used as a palette for painting end time scenarios. He further says that Mark 13 was intended to dampen our apocalyptic fervor. So this text we see invites us into our call to Christian discipleship in the space between the already and the not yet. What do we do in the in-between? And this text challenges us and calls us to this version of faithfulness in between the already and not yet. The owner leaves and has promised to return. What is the call to his servants in the in-between? I think the temptation of Christian discipleship is to be like the servant who goes to sleep and says, why do I have to keep watch when my master will be coming home soon? Why do I need to take ownership in the now when the owner is soon to come? And having this perspective that is so focused on the not yet that the servant misses their call to be faithful in the now. And the scripture that we're about to work through is a warning against that. It's a reminder that our call as disciples is to be both heavenly minded and earthly good. So the map for today, the kind of grid that we're going to follow as we work through this text is one, our focus is to be on the one who knows, not on the knowing. Two, God cares about the in-between as much as he does about the not yet. And three, 
that the onus is still ultimately on him. So this will be our map for today, and um, I'm just going to get right into it. So one, our focus is to be on the one who knows, not the knowing. In verse 32 it says, But about the day or the hour, no one knows, not even angels in heaven, nor the Son, um, but only the Father. So he says, but about the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So this verse confronts us both specifically and generally. So specifically, it's saying, okay, there's a lot of time you can spend estimating or trying to forecast when is the hour, when is the specific day, when is the specific year that the Lord is going to come back. Does anybody remember Y2K? When we were changing from 99 to 2000, where everyone thought, we are for certain. Guys, in, in, in Y2K, like when the clock was turning into 2000, I was in Disney World. And I thought like, oh, this is perfect. The world's going to end and I'm in Disney World. And I was excited because like the, the fireworks were going off. I was with my family. I was with the people I loved. And I'm like, finally, the world is going to end. Perfect. I didn't even hit 10 years old yet and the world is going to end. I lived a beautiful life. I hit all my goals, and the world is going to end. Fireworks go off. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five. My heart starts beeping, beating really hard. It's probably beeping too. <laughs> Three, two, one, zero. And I just was prepared to like just cease to exist. And I'm like, oh, I'm still here. <laughs> and then 12 years later, there's a lot of theories surrounding 2012. 2012 is significant in the Mayan calendar or whatever, and people were like Christians and non-Christians alike. Was, this is the year. We're all going to cease to exist. The world is over. The Lord is coming. 2012 came, and look at us, guys. We're still here. And now we find ourselves in 2023 without real insight as to when the Lord is going to come. And I think that this stands as this neat reminder to us that he is all-knowing and we are not. We are not privy to this information that the Son doesn't even have access to. And I think that our call, or even the, the human proclivity to want to know, stems back to something deeply tragic within our hearts. This desire to be God-like, this desire to be all-knowing, Ultimately, it points back to the garden where Adam and Eve desired to know all things, ultimately leading to the fall. And I think that this text is reminding us, it's almost like Jesus saying, chill out, I don't even know. Allow the Father to do the work that only the Father can do. You don't have to worry about the time, the minute, the hour, the year that God is meant to return. Be faithful in the now. So specifically, it tells us don't worry about the time. But generally, it helps us step back and, rem and always remember the fact that our pilgrimage in the now and in eternity is about God himself and not his activity. Picture with me a child, maybe five years old, and his dad. And the child starts realizing, wait, not everything is free in life. They go to the ice cream store, and the dad takes out a dollar. These days with inflation, the dad probably has to take out $20. And he said, and the child is looking at this exchange happening between the ice cream uh, person, I was going to say ice cream parlor, but a parlor isn't someone who 
serves ice cream. You guys get what I mean, the ice cream person. <laughs> and they give the money, and in exchange, they get the ice cream back. And then the dad, they, they drive along towards home, and then the, the dad pulls over to a gas station, and he, the son realizes that the dad is putting gas in the car. And the son starts calculating as the, the genius five-year-old he is, and he starts asking his dad, Dad, like, how much do you make in a year? And he says, Dad, like, do you make $5 a year? <laughs> and, and, and he's like, oh, no, no, son, don't worry about that. It's like, Dad, no, 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 do you make $10 a year? Do you make $20 a year? Dad, Dad, okay, it has to be this. Do you make $50 a year? Then the son starts getting intricate. And then he says, Dad, what do you do for work? What time do you leave for work? What is it that you... And then, and then the, the dad, recognizing how outside of the son's realm of comprehension his ways are to the son, just says, you know what, son? Don't worry about that. Just spend time with me. Just know that I will take care of you. I will make sure everything, there's going to be a day where you will know all things. There's going to be a day where I let you in on the things that I do. But right now, all you have to do is worry about your relationship with me. And I think that this is the second reminder of the text. The reminder that's a bit more general. This idea that God is saying, listen, there's things in life that will happen that you don't actually have to worry about. There's things that have to be left to your understanding and your trust in me. I don't know about you guys, but coming from the West Coast, I now have friends that are being affected by the fires right now. I have a friend who two nights ago lost his family cabin to the fires. And I, I calculate sometimes in my mind, it's like, God, why do you allow those things to happen? Or maybe some of you are dealing with terminal illness. Maybe some of you are dealing with grief right now. Maybe there's relationships that are in turmoil. And you're saying, God, like, why is it that this is happening? And you're left with questions. And something that I'm reminded in the face of suffering that is that sometimes God actually leaves us in the suffering, but leaves us in the unknown. And we don't know, one, why we're suffering, and we don't know why we're left in the unknown but he allows our hope and our trust in him to be fortified in the midst of the unknown. I love the song, um, uh, Firm Foundation, where it says, like, the, it's basically saying that I probably should have dialed in the lyrics of the song before I went to reference it. <laughs> but it's basically saying storms come, wind comes, but my, 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 hand, my, my house still stays strong, it still stays, stays firm because of the foundation it's built on. And this idea of, like, the house doesn't have any bearing on the things that are happening to it, but it does have a choice in what its foundation is. And I think that as Christians, there's some things that happen to us that are outside of our realm of comprehension. And we get to be confident. We get to be um, rooted in the fact that the foundation is the thing that we trust in, not our environment and not the house itself, but the foundation. And so God reminds us that our pilgrimage is meant to be focused on him, not meant to be focused on his activity or the things around us. And I realize, as I reflect on Christian discipleship, on the state of the church in North America, that we lose our way every time we are more focused on God's activity than God himself. We start turning within when we get more focused on revival than we do on the reviver. We get we get um, completely sideswiped. 
when we get so focused on building a church and we lose focus on the builder. There's, there's a lack of purity that comes about in our ministry, in our practice, the way we minister to our neighbors and, and stand as a Christian witness at our, at our workplaces when we're more focused on the, on, on the work that God is doing through us than the work he's just doing around us and in us. And so God says in the face of our discipleship, I want you, I want your heart. You don't have to worry about my activity. So focus on me and allow me to be the former and the shaper of who you are and your environment. Jesus says, don't worry about knowing the intimate details, but instead focus on intimately knowing the Father. Two, God cares about the in-between as much as he does the not yet. In verse 33, it says, be on guard, be alert. You do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going away he leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned text, and tells the one at the door, keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. All throughout the Gospels, we see parables and analogies like this one, calling the disciples of Jesus to wait with readiness and assertiveness. We see in Luke 12, in a simile that depicts servants waiting for a master to return from a wedding banquet. In Matthew 25, in the parables of the 10 women who are waiting for the, uh, the arrival of the bridegroom, where five were ready for his arrival, and five weren't. Similarly, in Matthew 24 and also in Luke 12, we see a parable about a faithful servant. And similarly, we see the same thing here. In this story, there's three notes that allude to responsibility given to the servants. In verse uh, 34, we see these three things. It says, he puts his servants in charge. It says, each with their own assignment. And then it says, um, tells the one at the door to keep watch. So this idea of, of leaving them with responsibility, leaving them with stewardship. And then there's two notes that depict um, that the servants are oblivious about the owner's return. So in verse 33, it says, you do not know when the time will come. In verse 35, it says, you do not know when the owner of the house will come back. So the parable encourages believers to be spiritually awake, vigilant, and actively engaged in the relationship with God, not knowing when he will return. What is the obsession in the Gospels around readiness, keeping watch, and being assertive? Why are they so focused on it? Why does this theme or version of this parable keep showing up all throughout the narrative of Scripture? I remember there was a moment growing up where I got my first, I think, it was, I, think I was nine years old, where I first was a senior manage, manager of a company. This company was my paper room. And I had a staff of two, my little brothers, Jordan and Gabriel. And Jordan and Gabriel were my faithful workers for about three years. I think it was three or four years. And it was about 13 or 14 where I got my first job. My first job, my first like real job, like non-paper route job, was at a place called No Frills. Does anyone know No Frills? Thrifty, 
thrifty and yellow. Thrifty and yellow is no frills. And I got to work at no frills for three years, but as I was transitioning out of my paper route and into no frills, I had a pretty detailed succession plan for how I was gonna set my brothers up for success in taking on this venture that I've so eloquently and strategically built up. My brothers being like, they're probably like nine or 10 at the time, said we're ready to take on the paper route. And they started packaging the paper. They went around, there's 66 houses in total. They'd go around our cul-de-sac and the surrounding neighborhood and give out the papers one at a time, one at a time, one at a time. And my brothers are the best for each other, but also the worst for each other. Because they started thinking, they're like, oh, this is kind of a lot of work. This packaging of the papers is a lot of work. We need to do this every day after school. This is insane. This is torture. So they did it a couple more weeks, and then they get a brilliant idea. It's like, what if we, every now and then, just instead of going house to house to give out the papers, we tranced on over to the neighborhood garbage bin and just like threw all the papers into the garbage bin instead of giving it out. And they talked amongst each other and they said, this is a brilliant idea, let's make sure to do it. She only, there's a manager of the paper route kind of uh, company and she would only check like once a month or whatever and, he, and they said like, what are the chances that she's gonna check on the day that we choose to dump all the, all the newspapers? And so they go with this brilliant idea the, the papers were put on our front lawn as they normally were to, for them to set up and get ready for delivery. They take the papers and they put them in the cart as if they're going to deliver it. And then they, they figured, okay, the manager isn't coming today, so we're gonna throw out the papers. And they started realizing like, oh, this is actually the easier version of doing our job. Like, all we have to do is get rid of these papers, right? <laughs> they kept doing it and they, they built a habit of doing it where day after day, there's probably like one time out of a month where they had actually delivered the papers. And then there was some um, older folk in our neighborhood that started asking, like, where are our coupons that we usually get in the paper? And then they called up the newspaper company <laughs> and the manager started upping the amount of time she does her checks. So she checked out the houses that my brothers were supposed to do the paper and there was a specific time that they were supposed to do the paper at. And there's a couple times where she went by and she, she just didn't see the papers at the door. And she's like, oh, okay, maybe it's just like people have been getting them early. They maybe delivered them early. And then she kept going, kept checking, kept checking, kept checking. And they, they, just, they just haven't been doing it. So she asked them, she said, Jordan, Gabriel, like, I've noticed something curious about your paper route. Every single time I go and check it, there's no paper there. <laughs> and they get in trouble and long story short, they get fired. <laughs> But the, the idea of this is that there's no hiding faithfulness when you don't know when your owner is returning. They didn't know when the owner was returning, so their unfaithfulness was exposed. And similarly, the time that the owner was gonna return in this parable wasn't disclosed to the people of the house, the stewards of the house, the servants of the house. So faithfulness was required of them. When you are in this place where you know your manager is around and working, you can be diligent. You're like, the manager's home, he's watching. So I'm gonna make sure to work my most efficiently, I'm gonna be attent attentive to detail, because the manager can come anytime. But you're able to see the worker with real work ethic and integrity when 
they don't know whether the manager is around. You get to see the real contents of the worker or the employee when the manager isn't around. It's either you have integrity or you don't. And so my brothers wanted the paycheck without the responsibility. They wanted the fruit without the stewardship. And the same temptation is presented to us as believers. The owner extends the privileges of the house with the duties of the house and expects a team of servants who are embracing both, both the duties of the house and the stewardship of that house. And the temptation of our day is to embrace the house keys and reject the call to faithfulness, to embrace the gift of God's grace and reject the call to holiness. God is not just inviting us into the sweetness of the not yet, but he's inviting us into the formation and the faithfulness that we're called to in the now. An integrity that is so deeply connected within our nature and cemented within us that no matter if it is tomorrow or two years from now, Jesus would come to a bride that is found faithful. So how do we become like this? How do we become people of heaven today even though heaven is not yet? Paul affirms this and kind of gives us answers to this question in his letter to the Philippians when he says this. He says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says that our readiness is evidenced by the degree to which we reflect heaven in the now, living as if the the owner is home all the time. And as I kind of was talking with my wife about this sentence, this idea of like living as if the owner is home all the time, she said, wait a minute, but the owner is home all the time. As the new temple, we're promised that Jesus is actually within us, that he's actually residing in our hearts. So it's like when we, when we act in a way that's contrary to how he calls us to act, it's almost as if we're falling asleep We're not being attentive. We're leaving the house a mess when the owner is right there watching us, almost disregarding his presence. But when we're more aware of his presence working in and through us, it's usually in that time where a pure witness comes from us and we're able to authentically live out in the discipleship that God calls us to. This is why when Jesus' disciples ask him to teach them how to pray, One of the key lines Jesus says is, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's saying, as disciples of me, make sure to become people who embody the values and ethos of heaven now. We are not meant to be earth people today who are sent to heaven tomorrow. We're meant to be heaven people today who are stewarding earth now. So Jesus calls us into this. He says, I am coming for a house. I'm coming back to a house that is in order and a people that are ready. And we become like this by living like he is already here. I love the song in the, I love the Hillsong song, um, Resurrender. The lyrics are so beautiful and capture this so well. It says, you see a holy nation, a flock to consecrate, a chosen generation, a people called to pray. So help us, God, to please you, where only you can see, for every moment matters in eternity. So citizens of heaven, living like heaven is on earth, 
And sometimes I step back, again, looking at the North American church. And I wonder if the failure of the North American church when it comes to mission, evangelism, and discipleship is because we forgot where our true citizenship is found. A sort of eschatological dementia we've fallen into. It doesn't make sense because Paul's entire corpus of writing is all about being ready, being found blameless, being found um, as, as the people who have, um, whose owner have, has come back to the house and found servants ready. In Colossians 1, to 22, it says, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. In 1 Corinthians 1, 7 to 8, it says, As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 to 24, it says, May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. Lastly, in 1 Thess- Thessalonians again, um, 3, 13, it says, May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. He's saying, I want to come back to find you awake. I want to come back to find you alert, and I want to come back to find you holy. And you might say, as you think about this, it's like holiness, sanctification, all these things that I hear from Pastor Jerry and Jordan, all these things seem like big comments and are big, um, big ideas and a big challenge. But we have to realize that this is what Jesus invites us into. It's like, but it, it can feel very stressful as we're invited into that in Christian discipleship. It says, it's like what, like, what do I do when I mess up though? What do I do when I fall asleep? What does this mean when I fall into a habit of neglecting my tasks? What do I do when the pressure of temptation of the city or living as a Christian in this day and age or growing up as a high school student or a young adult in 2023, what do I do when it's just too much for me to bear? I think I could end the sermon and say, just try your best. Just grit your teeth, just stay awake, just peel your eyes open. Just stay awake. All God wants you to do is stay awake. But all of you know this. If you've been a Christian for more than a day, that it is too hard to stay awake sometimes. It is too hard. The pressure is too thick. But I have good news for you. The third point is there. If this message was complete without a third point, this would just be a call to stressing yourself out. This would be a call to perseverance. This would be a pep talk. Go back out on that field and work your hardest. Allow blood and sweat and tears to fall from your body and allow the Lord to realize that you found yourself faithful because you worked the hardest you could. But I have news for you. There is a third point. Could say, ah, you're just not grinding enough, man. Ah, you just haven't realized that if you're just good enough, you can actually earn the salvation of the Lord. A lot of you 
who have been Christian for a while and understand the nuance and nature and grace of the gospel know that that message isn't true. Your alarm bell should have went off because the gospel says that we can't work enough. We can't do enough to satisfy our own sin. We can't do enough to win our own redemption. Point three is there. And point three says this. The onus is still ultimately on him. Mark drops an Easter egg in this text. Some of you guys are fans of different Marvel movies or Disney movies where it's like, or Taylor Swift music. Any Taylor Swift fans here? I think they're called Swifties. Are they called Swifties? Where you drop Easter eggs, there's, there's, there's hints in an album from like 2009 that's going to like forecast a song in like 2022. It's like Mark does the same thing. The biblical authors, because they're Hebrew in origin, a lot of them, they, they are very much so nuanced and deep in their thinking and the way they connect themes. This idea of connecting the Old Testament to the New is, is very much pervasive throughout the text. But they also connect chapters and sentences and, and different, different themes throughout their books as well. And drop, uh, Mark drops an Easter egg in verse 34, 35, and 37. He says, He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned tasks and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Could everyone say with me, keep watch? And then in 35, he says, therefore, keep watch. Everyone say, keep watch? Because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back. Verse 37 says, what I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Everyone say, watch. Mark, as a writer, is known for a sense of urgency. He's always moving people along throughout his book, almost as if the little narratives leading up to the passion narrative don't matter. So he always uses this, this word immediately. In the Greek, you see immediately, 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 moving us on ultimately towards the cross. And he uses other connecting language throughout the book. And he's always doing something like his he doesn't just write just to write. He's always doing something, always trying to bring our attention back and forth and back and forth. I remember I had one professor in my master's who would always say, you can't know the gospel of Mark without knowing Isaiah. And my mind was blown. I was like, what? What do you mean by that? And he started making a case that Mark is always echoing back to the, to the God, the Jesus suffering servant that we see in Isaiah. And similarly, we see almost like a micro Easter egg in connection between Mark 13 and Mark 14. What's interesting in Mark 13, we see this word used for keep watch. This, um, this word in the Greek that's gregoreo, that is used to say be awake or stay alert. That Greek word is used three times in today's teaching, which we repeated together three times. Verse 34, verse 35, verse 37. It's like, oh, this obviously wants us to stay awake and be alert. But what's curious to me is the next time in the Gospels where this word is used is the next chapter over in Mark 14 where Jesus finds himself in the Garden of Gethsemane alongside three of his disciples in prayer. And in this instance, the same Greek word that is used for keep watch is used three times, standing as a hint for us. Jesus is in prayer anticipating his impending death and is encouraging his disciples to stay up and pray with him. But three times he finds them sleeping. Three times the individuals who should be most ready and most attentive are sleeping. 
Jesus is working, laboring in prayer. He's burdened to the point where he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Jesus is wrestling with the cup of suffering that would soon be poured out on him on the cross. And he says to the Father, this is, how it, this is how intense and this is how extreme it is. He says to the Father, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. This work is too much. Staying awake is too hard. He is laboring in every form of pain imaginable. Ultimately, submitting his fate to the Father where he says this, Yet not what I will, but what you will. He's laboring, eyes heavy, forehead dripping with sweat. And then he reminds his disciples three times, he says, keep watch, keep watch, keep watch. And three times he finds them sleeping, ultimately reminding us that we will never, in our own strength, be able to muster up the energy needed to please the owner. Our peeling our eyes open will never be enough. We will never be able to keep watch in and of our own strength. We will lose attentiveness, our eyes will fail us, we'll doze off to sleep. We will never have the fortitude, the strength in, a, in and of ourselves to keep watch. This reminds us that the salvation is not the outcome of our work, but it's actually the outcome of His. There was a time, I was about 17 or 18, when my parents, as a form of like just additional income, took on this job of designated driving. So they would go to local pubs in town and and pick people up so that they can get home safely. It was like a form of income and they also grew to see it as a ministry. There was one day, however, when my dad was out of town um, or in a couple towns over as a, he, my dad was a truck driver. And, and uh, so I told my mom I'd, I'd step in. Uh, in that season of life, I was doing a lot. I was in high school, I was in student council and playing sports and working 24 hours a week and still trying to keep good marks because I wanted to get into university. There's so much that I was thinking about. And I don't know what it was that day, but as I was driving our family car, seven-seater, caravan, I was starting to feel heavy eyes. And I was driving behind my mom. She was driving the passenger. And... I was like, ah, oh, I, gotta, I, gotta, I gotta keep awake. I gotta keep awake. I gotta keep awake. And I remember it just got, the tiredness just got too much to bear. And I ended up veering off the road, totaling our family car into a fire hydrant. And I remember waking up and feeling like, what just happened? My body shot with adrenaline. Thankfully, I was okay. Adrenaline was pumping through my veins. I got out of the car, I looked back, saw it totaled, and I just started running. I just started running, because I was hoping to catch my mom and tell her what had just happened. And finally, I got to my senses, and I picked up the phone, I called my mom, and I called my mom, and I said, Mom, like I just totaled our car, I fell asleep behind the wheel. And my mom said, wait, where are you, where are you? So I described what street I was at, and she said, okay, I'm going to call your dad to see if he can come and meet us. And the moment she said that, I don't know about you guys, but those, those words, call your dad, are some scary words for me still to this day. My dad's like 1.5 times my size. She said, call, wait, we don't need to do that. <laughs> we don't need to do that, do we? Like we can just trade it in or something, like take care of it quick before he comes home. <laughs> and I was like, okay, if you have to, mom, 
call my dad. <laughs> and my dad uh, drove and he was driving like a big semi. And I remember being so scared because I, I let them down. I totaled the family car. I couldn't keep watch. And my dad finally turned into our street. And then I saw <laughs> the big truck coming towards me representing his body type. <laughs> and he stopped the truck, stepped down from the, the car. And he was walking towards me, and I'm like, man, am I going to get, like, knocked out? No, my dad, my dad would never do that. But, like, the things that were going through my mind was I was just so scared. This big Jamaican man walking towards me. And he walks towards me, walks towards, walks towards me, and before I could even say something, he, like, wraps his arms around me. And he says, Daniel, don't worry. I will take care of it, and I'll take care of you. Even when your eyes failed you, my eyes didn't. Even when you feel as if you can't do it in your own strength, you can borrow some of mine. And in this moment, I, I truly understood the love, the power, and the grace of God. This idea that our fortitude, our effort, our strength will never win us salvation, will never truly make us holy. It's when we say yes to him and his formative work that he wants to do in our life and allow the work to be done by him. When we truly accept the grace and mercy of God and allow him to form us from the inside out, making us holy and blameless. Reading the teaching text for today, we can't interpret it to mean that our salvation is based on our grit or determination. Just keep watch, keep watch, keep watch. Beating it into our hearts and minds. Our salvation has always been and will always ultimately land on his shoulders, not ours. We may fail at our task, but he didn't fail at his. We may fall asleep, but he remains awake. That's why he is the only one who has walked the earth that can pray the great high priestly prayer of John 17, uh, 4 to 5, with integrity, which says, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you have given me to do, speaking to the Father. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world had begun. The great worker invites us into his work. And that's why he's the one who's also capable of saying this. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest for your soul. Because my burden is easy and my yoke is light. You don't have to rely on your work anymore. Just draw near to me. Hug me. Grow in intimacy and relationship with me. And I will take care of your formation and your holiness. God, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you that you are our cornerstone. You're the one who was, you're the one who is, and you're the one who is to come. Because you're outside of time, we can trust you to be with us in the now. God, I pray that we would be a people who are made holy like you are. 
you call us, Lord, to be holy as you are holy. So I pray that we would be people, be servants who look to you as the owner who's coming back, but as the owner who will make up for where we fall. God, we trust you and we love you. We give our hearts and lives to you. And we do all these things and say all these things for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. So sanctuary in times of old, the one giving a blessing would extend hands and those receiving a blessing would do likewise. If you would like a blessing, a benediction, a word for you as you go, would you extend hands? So sanctuary as you go, go in confidence, in hope, and in joy, knowing that the love of God the Father, the grace of Jesus Christ, and the presence of the Holy Spirit goes with you. Be blessed, go in peace, and we'll see you next Sunday.